0: Dead prayers The cool People army Where the G's at Come on Fuck the police Hey y'all ready for this shit y'all Trump Y'all ready get in this crump You got to get up, run right
1: I'm oh. go, oh. I'm against this government I ain't got to cover it up, that's what I meant Sick of paying bills and I'm sick of
0: paying rent Seems like I work all the time but don't know where the money went And the funny shit is we supposed to like this shit But all y'all politicians could bite this dick It's a war going on, the ghetto is a the case They only give you two choices, be a rebel or a slave so what you do? So I rebel
1: What up? You're listening to Champagne Sharks. I am Vita Starr. And on this episode of Champagne Sharks, we are speaking with Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly, aka Dr. CBS. She is currently an assistant professor of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. She's a scholar of political theory, political economy, and intellectual history. She's also co-author of W.B. Du Bois' A Life in American History uh, with Dr. Gerald Horn, And her published work appears in Journals including Small Acts, Souls, Du Bois Review, Socialism and Democracy, International Journal of Africana Studies, and the CLR James Journal. She will be speaking to us about capitalism and racial capitalism and what that means. How does that impact Black people? How does that affect us? What is it that we even understand about it? How are we influenced in our perspectives about capitalism and about our own circumstances and beyond that? So we're going to get into all that and much more right after this
0: hey how's it going champagne sharks hope everyone's doing well just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning let people know go to champagne sharks.com and you get access to all the links related to champagne sharks So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club clubhouse so right now it's closed off it's in beta testing you have to be an iphone member but if you join patreon and through patreon join the discord you will be able to get uh, clubhouse invites and the reason why we want people to get those clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans and you need to get invited to take part of that including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks without further ado here is the episode
1: all right welcome back and now we are here with dr sharice burden stelly welcome
2: thank you for having me
1: Uh, Thank you for coming on again, because I know I have a a bazillion things that I am trying to understand and break down, because I see so many um, conversations around... capitalism and race and that i see conflict around black wealth and black excellence and i thought that you know you'd give us great insight into that and i know uh t who's also here has some things he wanted to talk about as well i know you have questions about things too t
0: yeah i have questions particularly about uh the article is a very interesting history of the uh lineage and development of of this debate and the questions i had were kind of more basic about um you know what Cedric Robinson was arguing versus what uh, Hubert Harrison might've been arguing and things of that, of that level. But yeah, I had a lot of questions too.
1: So um, first, Dr. CVS, when we, when people talk about race and capitalism and how they intersect um, as far as how you specifically focus on it, what is your focus?
2: Um, So when I think about racial capitalism or when I write about it, I'm essentially looking at some broad, Um, kind of world historical, international, and kind of macro processes that um, constitute capitalism as a system, as well as what's going on within nations. So what does that mean? Um, Essentially, I'm thinking about all of the ways in which Um, capitalist exploitation processes of racialization and race making um, imperialism colonialism and warmongering come together to produce an economic system rooted in uh, racial hierarchy and um, economic hierarchies in which the overwhelming majority of people exploited and dispossessed in a very small class of ruling elite are at the top and of the, you know, the p- persons who are represented at the bottom, a large section of that population who are extremely exploited or what I call super exploited are racialized people. And um, I focus on um, black folks. And so essentially I'm trying to, uh, when I talk about racial capitalism, I'm looking at the ways in which these processes of, of racialization um, or the ways in which value is ascribed to people based on race as an descriptive category. The ways in which that influences um, forms of capitalist exploitation and then also the ways in which capitalist exploitation or the ways in which, you know, surplus value extracted from those who sell their labor for wages, how that informs or gives content to these processes of of race making or of, of racialization. So to put it plainly, it's essentially that you can't really understand, you know, economic differentiation or economic inequality without understanding racism. And you can't really understand racism without understanding um, structural and material conditions or or political economy. And so I think that when folks use racial capitalism, this is their making some variation of that argument some like I would argue Cedric Robinson is more focused on the racialism or the racial dynamics and then others the more sort of orthodox Marxists who might not even use the term racial capitalism are are more focused on the economic structures and would see race as what they call epiphenomenal or race as a function of class so um, and then there's people you know people like me um, others like, you know, um, Olufemi o- Taiwo, who's a philosopher at Georgetown, um, people like Peter James Hudson and others draw on a particular um, archive of thinkers who really think about um, racism and racialization and um, capitalism together. So, So. When
1: I hear just automatically in my mind, and probably because I have like trauma from college, <laughs> but whenever I would hear sort of the conversation around the classism aspect of being the focus, it's usually something, a way of being dismissive of the racial aspect of things. So for example, I will be in a class and you hear this white guy go, you know, because he's newly politicized, quote unquote, and he's, you know, been studying Marx and he's, he always says something like, it's not about classism, it's about racism. You know, and that's, and every time I hear that, that perspective, I automatically kind of shut down in a sense that I feel like, they're trying to shut down the perspective around race. Do you feel like that's the case? Or is this just like, you know, they just don't know any better or people just don't understand how they, these things intersect? Or is it like uh, basically purposeful, like a way to manipulate the conversation?
2: Well, I think it could be any number of things. I think that some people are still invested in white supremacy, even as they are interrogating class issues, um, I think that some people for some people, they're because they're, you know, they're white or of European descent, in the con- which is the sort of the um, superordinate category in the u s and indeed throughout the world, the ways in which the only way in which they can understand any form of of oppression or subjection is through, class and to acknowledge race within challenge challenge them as a sort of oppressed uh, category and so it's easier to evade or not talk about race for other people they think that, you know, the focus on race or or what, you know, people derisively call identity politics is a, is a way to evade class and to focus only on race um in ways that don't get at the core material issues. So I think that there's a number of reasons why people um avoid the question of race. But and it's also, you know, it's it's difficult and uncomfortable and, and people really, even you know, self-styled radicals or leftists or whatever believe in this linear progress narrative that the more we've moved through time, the less, you know, the, the more race has become, has declined in significance or um, the, the less that race matters as a category of, of, you know, let us say dispossession and domination. But if we are, you know, if we look both locally, nationally and globally, we know that this is simply not the case. We know that the forms of, you um, the forms of of racialized oppression have changed over time. So for example, we've gone from like a narrative of Jim Crow, or you know, a structural reality of Jim Crow, to a, a you know structural reality of like mass incarceration and ostensible post-racialism and multiculturalism. But we still see, for example, the ways in which COVID nineteen has ravaged racialized communities at rates far higher than other communities, um, which goes to show that the pandemic simply was, you know, um, an overlay onto much broader and much more endemic and systemic issues of structural lack that have plagued racialized and black communities, you know, irrespective of things like the Voting Rights Act, or the Civil Rights Act, or, you know, irrespective of the fact that more black people go to college now. So those are simply, those are um, forms of sort of um, progress that hasn't really changed the overall conditions of, of black people. So all of that to say, Um, it's really hard, you know, race is a really difficult conversation for white folks to have, and it's easier to just evade it or downplay it than to confront it.
1: So what is the concern or what's being missed if the focus is on just race and without a class analysis?
2: Well, that's when you get, you look at, you get somebody like Kamala Harris, um, or Mm. Oprah or Beyonce or whomever. And we see that we see the progress of those people are quote unquote progress and achievement of those people and think that the races that are off for it which is not the case right because the overwhelming majority of black people are not rich are not affluent and are actually getting poorer and so when we don't have a class analysis we start to think that the part stands in for the whole that is to say the 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 you know, petty bourgeoisie or the, you know, the um, political elite or the entertainment class is representative of the material conditions of Black people as a whole, because a few of them are doing well. And so what it does is rationalize or legitimates, you know, impoverishment or the deteriorating deteriorating life conditions of the overwhelming majority of Black people when you can point to an Obama or you can point to, you know, uh, a LeBron James or you can point to uh, even you know even if we're looking globally you know we we point to um, Adichie DJ or whomever right the you know the right. richest woman on the African continent is you know is an Angolan woman so so looking
1: at their financial success as some sort of image of success for black people or some sort of marker of progress which makes me also think of like tv shows like the cosby show because mm-hmm. one of the things whenever i was like watch let's say you watch like some special that's you know covering the cosby show or people just commenting on 80 shows and the cosby show comes up number one thing that always comes up is how happy black people were to see black people to be middle class to see Black people, you know, mom's a uh, lawyer, dad's a doctor, they live in a nice home. They don't, you know, have to do with racism on a regular basis or anything like that. They get to be Black um, in a very specific way. And that was always like sort of like the focus in the conversation. I think that's even connected to the Black excellence conversation. Do you feel like when we see like, w- when we within our community are having those type of conversations, do you feel like that is constructed or do you feel like that's just how black people like how maybe we just naturally began to see things living in a in a um, capitalist society
2: well, I think that, so, um, one of, you know, my comrades, uh, Erica Keynes talks about identity reductionism versus identity politics. And I think to a certain, and this has something to do with representation insofar as there's nothing wrong with wanting particular representations of black people on TV that are not negative. That's not always either slavery or, you know, blackface or black people incarcerated or, you know, black people, um, impoverished and on drugs right that that when those are the only representations of black people it, it becomes welcome to have a, a more multifaceted and a representation of, of like black life and experience and, and culture right but I think the problem becomes when those representations especially in entertainment stand in for actual changing the actual material realities of people Ordinary or real people. Right. So just because the, co- the Cosby's live that life doesn't mean that that actually results in any material changes for the people who are watching the Cosby's on television. And so I think that, you know, perhaps, you know, both need the, co- the the represent the pot. OK, so now we can talk about blackish, for example. Right. Which is mm-hmm. a very particular mode of being black. There's nothing wrong as such with that representation, because surely some black people relate to that reality. The problem is when that becomes understood as the way that black people are living, or the way that, you know, um, the way that the majority of of black people experience their lives in the United States. And so I think that that's when it becomes problematic. Um, but again, surely there's nothing wrong with you know, black people wanting to see particular types of rep- representations of their communities um, on television, you know, and we even see it now when people talk about, you know, black, you know, representation or, you know, black entertainment, that's not only about <laughs> overcoming racism, or that's not like trauma porn, basically,
1: or, or like the shows that are focusing us living in the hood and trying to survive selling drugs, or, you know, that's, there's a lot of shows like that. So I definitely feel that I, I guess I'm always concerned when you only have one conversation. And I, I and I think now it's probably changed. But when, I feel like when I was growing up, the conversation was very much kind of the focus on race without the class um, analysis. Because <laughs> I feel like I've never seen that growing up, in, at least not in the media or not not even in black media.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that that's pop, that's that's correct. Right. I think that we do. We have the conversations all the time, but we don't necessarily you we don't have the conversations in a way, in in maybe the you know academic language or whatever. So I think that we do have a class, a, a latent class analysis, but we don't necessarily have class consciousness or class solidarity in particular ways. But but certainly, I think there is a way in which, especially in like '90s sitcoms, we would see and, it, and we see it even in politics and stuff. We see you know black people black people doing well as an objective good and don't really critically interrogate what's actually um, what's actually going on and how that might relate or not relate to what's happening. Cause for example, the 1980s is, <laughs> this is Reaganomics. This is the rollback of the welfare state. This is when the gains that were made in the sixties and seventies and, and, um the, the standard of living for black folks is being rolled back. And this is in contradistinction to the rise of like a different world, um, the show, right. Or the Cosby show or these other shows um, that are showing affluent or well-off black folks and so there's just a disjuncture between what's being represented um, and what's actually happening on the ground.
0: I think also what is happening is it's not just that class isn't being discussed in those old shows. I think to a degree class is discussed sometimes, but even when it is, there's no addressing of the macro. So I think that you had things like good times or other things where uh, Black people were poor and suffering, but it was kind of... There's not a real lens given as to why are they poor and suffering. There's just a kind of general malaise and oppression. Like it's a given. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of a given. And also you get a sense sometimes that there's a general thing out there called racism. And it's hanging in the air and it's adding an extra level to the poverty, but you don't really get An idea of really how does it really work? How is it making people poor or keeping them poor outside of every now and then there's a microaggression or something or a job you don't get, you know, but there's not a real big, big picture class analysis or... Or consciousness. It's
1: almost like it's still individualistic, like you know what I mean, like how yeah. the, the sort of American individualistic perspective is about you pulling yourself up, sort of perspective. Um, and so yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point.
2: Well, and I think that we need to distinguish between the descriptive and the analytical, right? To describe yeah. something is different than to analyze something. So what you're talking about is like the the impoverishment is being represented, right? Or the working class nature is being represented, but it's not, there's no so what. It's the what, but not the so what. And the so what is the analysis. And so these shows are not providing, as you're saying, like a way to understand why, how these things came to be, why it is that, you know, how these families are poor and living in high rises or whatever, or conversely, the relationship between the families that are well off and affluent, the bosses and the managers and those who um, who are their workers. And, and these are you know, all black people. Right. So there's all of these different types of um, of relationships that we see in different shows, for example, like, you know, Family Matters or Martin or whatever. And it's not even just t- television shows. There's you know, there's also um music and and other forms of representation. And I think that the broader question is like, to what end? To what end are we having these forms of entertainment? Um, Are they to reproduce, you know, U.S. propaganda? Like, as you were saying, that if you just work hard enough if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps then you'll make it or is it, are these shows shining us actual spotlight on us society that say no matter you know many many people work very hard right many people work hard their whole lives and that's not why some people are rich and some people are poor you know the the impoverishment and the ghettoization and the um, oppression of black folks is not a sort of moral or ethical failure. But when we only see drug dealers or drug addicts or drug dealers represented, when we only see, you know, gangsters and all these things represented, then we, we come to understand that that is the reason why black people are poor and oppressed is because of their moral and ethical failures, because, because of their culture of poverty, because they're, you know, they're underclass um, mores, as opposed to looking at the broader structures.
0: Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the original discourse around the Cosby Show. And something that was very interesting was that there was a kind of straw man that used to be um, lobbed at people complaining about the Cosby Show. Where, And this straw man went across liberal and conservative circles. I think it was just basically um, any kind of black excellence of the era. Type of circles would kind of say, oh, you're so defeatist that you don't believe um, wealthy black people exist or you're so you so internalized, like, you know, uh, uh, sist- uh, idea of giving up or, or idea of white supremacy that you um feel like people black people being successful is uh not accurate and my family is has black doctors in it or my you know they kind of make it like a problem with your imagination or your acceptance of um, self-defeat like you know you're you're not you're not <laughs> accepting that people can win but what the actual articles were saying was that it wasn't properly contextualizing uh, black wealth, like the idea, like it was kind of implicitly saying that um, black wealth is just there for the taking, and if you don't take it, it's because you're not following the respectability of the um, of the Cosby. So there was no, like you said, contextualizing of um, why are they allowed to be successful while other black people who um, might work hard or want to do things don't make it. Like, what is the context of their success, and how does it relate to other black people and that was like the real criticism of the of the time that uh it was kind of acting like the struggle was over we made it to the mountaintop uh we won which i think was a very popular civil rights boomer generation narrative that we got everything the white man that we asked for and now it's on us to take what uh you know they lived up to their end of the bargain it's up to us to take take advantage So, so i think it's very interesting that even the people who were kind of defending the Cosby show never really uh, properly properly phrased their critics' uh, criticism to begin with. A lot of it was very straw man oriented, I think.
2: Yeah, and I think the other thing to understand is like the rise of that sort of liberal, liberal or um, even that some of that is a little bit particular types of Black nationalists or like conservative Black nationalist discourse. A lot of that arose at a moment when the left, right, the Black left, and Black internationalist forces were extremely beleaguered Right. So and then, you know, we had COINTELPRO in the 1960s. Before that, we had rabid anti-communism um, that created the conditions, in fact, for um, COINTELPRO and the ways that the the sort of black, radical, leftist, socialist, internationalist, Pan-Africanist forces were subjected to extreme state violence and repression. And this is not to say that they were disciplined out entirely because we still have, for example, the anti-apartheid movement that's, that is booming in the 1980s. 80s, But that a lot of those voices that were arguing for that had a strong class analysis and that were very, very critical of of the black ruling elite and warned, in fact, against the ways in which the black um, elected officials, BEOs, right, the black political class um, might be co-opted into the system in ways that was not beneficial to the overwhelming majority of working oppressed and poor people, those were the people who were thrown in jail, who were uh, deported, who were murdered, who were exiled, or who are otherwise marginalized. Um, and so what won out and what was funded and what was pushed forth is the very narratives that you're talking about, right? And so we also need to understand the role of the, the disciplining and repression of of Black radicalism on the one hand, and also the really intentional and and strong co-optation of other, for, of other Black forces that then leads to the rise of, these narratives, uh, you know, these these sort of very Americanist narratives of, you know, work hard, pull your pants up, um, you know, those those sorts of things that are conveyed through particular types of, of um, sitcoms that we see rise at that moment.
0: A theme that I feel keeps coming up in your modern U.S. racial capitalism article is this idea that a lot of things that happen on an international level with oppressed Uh, and imperialized people around the world tends to usually have a parallel or a component happening domestically in America. And I kind of realize you move the lens uh, forward and back to focus on like the U.S. South or anti-blackness in America and then draw a parallel to what is happening around the world among colonized people and in different places, especially in areas that combine both in one, where it's like black and Colonial, Like like what happens in Haiti and things like that. I wanted to ask you my understanding, but tell me if I understand this correctly, but what you describe about the beleaguered black radicals and and leftists in America by the time it got to the 80s, uh, something similarly happened internationally as well, right? Where uh, I believe... Pan-Africanism had was building up and had kind of hit like a peak in on the continent and in the Caribbean and you know those same forces you described happening here in America were kind of happening uh internationally too where people were anyone who was kind of preaching radicalism or socialism on on the continent or in the um Caribbean was getting wiped out people like Lumumba uh, or, or marginalized or repressed and you know people were being put in that fit an image, you know, usually put in by like Western powers that put an image that focused on, you know, capitalism and playing the game internationally as the way for to move forward. And would you you call that an oversimplification? Is that too glib a parallel or?
2: Um, Yeah. So before, so Vita, it sounded like you wanted to hop in maybe on the last conversation and then I can answer. uh, Uh, Sure was just
1: asked oh yeah because i was just thinking about just in my mind i was thinking more so around the idea of everything being cons- sort of these conversations being constructed um because i'm a strong believer that none- nothing's an accident in media <laughs> so that's I kind of just, just going to go further into that because it's never an accident when you start to have um a mass perspective across the board in various programs and various tv shows and various even in music commercials you know sort of represent like oh well we're doing the representation diversity thing I, I never think those things are an accident right this it's not an accident that all these companies all at the same time advertise the same way towards black people it's not an accident that all these tv shows are now you know pushing this sort of other perspective around and, and, and narratives around blackness especially where i feel like they marginalize uh radical perspectives so like a show like um a different world i've seen multiple episodes where there was a quote-unquote radical perspective and then it ends up being marginalized or considered too extreme um so when, when it comes outside of that you know our influence and our perspective is i mean i'm sorry our perspective is off of that influence which is okay that's someone being extreme they're not fitting in line with the you know pull yourself up by the bootstraps you can just go to college and change your community from doing that so that's all i was gonna say
2: yeah so just to actually bring both of your points together in terms of you know the the role of the media or the role of like ideo- basically ideology on the one hand and then the sort of um, parallels between repression domestically and rep- repression abroad, I think these things are very, very linked, right? These if we're looking at what's happening um, in the 1980s in the, you know, so basically the 1960s and 19, early 1970s are a moment of profound optimism because there is decolonization happening. There is, in 1968, it's known as the year of world revolution where there's all of these strikes, all of these protests around race, gender, Labor, um, decolonization, all of these things are coming together. And there's really this feeling that another world is possible. And, at, and during this time, we have something called the New International Economic Order, whereby a, um, the group of 77, which is the sort of the de- quote unquote developing or the third world countries, come together and really push in the United Nations to have a fundamental redistribution of wealth and resources to overcome these relations of underdevelopment and dependency that are the product of. Centuries of colonialism and imperialism and enslavement, and of course, the West ain't having that shit. And so we see these parallel movements where there's a sort of ideological offensive, right, which is really pushing this idea of um, that capitalism can work if you, you know, if you work hard enough, if you, if you don't rely on the government, you know, if you, if you um, adopts the right attitude. All of these sorts of things. And this is happening both domestically and abroad, because the other thing that's happening by the 1980s is something called structural adjustment programs. And this is where the United States and um, the Washington Consensus, the World Bank and the IMF are disciplining these these newly um, independent countries through uh, by having them sort of disinvest from their their strong. Um, planned economies, having them privatize, open up their markets because of a um, because of the high debt load they ha- had taken on um shortly after independence in order to be able to take, you know, to take care of their populations, to build up the state, et cetera. And so so you have a rollback of the welfare state in places like the United States and the UK on the other hand, on the one hand, and then you have the this imposition of structural adjustment programs on the other hand, which has catastrophic economic consequences. And all of this needs to be rationalized. All of this needs to be legitimated. And this is the role of ideology. And so you have, you know, This idea, you start to have like, you know, this idea of the welfare queen, you start to have this idea of, you know, these lazy blacks who are relying on the state instead of working hard and lifting themselves up. And so then, and then, so what, what these representations in entertainment of people who are Black people who are uh, successful, and then you also have, have at this moment, more Black people who are CEOs, who are moving into the upper echelons of, of management in, um, in corporate America, they become the models, right? It's like, see, look, they did it. You can do it too. If you don't do it, you're lazy. You don't work hard, et cetera, et cetera. Likewise, what's happening in the global South is that countries who, ha- who are socialist oriented or who are... Are non-aligned, or who um, have a, a large sort of state sector, or who are trying to invest money in lifting up their populations, they're also considered to be deviant because they're not following the path of the West. Right? They're not. Fo- they're not adopting the right attitude in terms of what they should be doing, which is privatizing, which is opening and opening up their markets, which is um, lowering tariffs, so that. Uh, You know, so that goods, uh, global goods can be more competitive. But what that does is undermines um, industries in their own countries. And so all of this has to do with like, what is the what is the way that one is recognized as legitimate? Or what is the way that in which people are recognized as good citizens, whether it be citizen in your country or citizen of the world? And of course, the imposed model is the Western model is the capitalist model. And so any deviation from that becomes Discredited, it becomes attacked, and so we see attacks. For example, in the United States, with the rise of the prison industrial complex, which is very much um, related to the disciplining of these Black radicals, um, who um, you know who um, are you know pushing back against the state. Those that's a large portion of who's thrown in jail. We see the disciplining globally with structural adjustment and with um, increased U.S. militarism and aggression. So. For me, right, we have to look at capitalism as a global system and we have to always be thinking about how discourses of racialization result in particular material processes like invasion on the one hand or mass incarceration on the other that are usually reserved for countries where, for, for black and brown peoples, quite frankly. And so um, that is how I sort of answered both of those questions together and just think about the role of racial capitalism as a, as a framework more broadly.
1: You know, you're actually kind of bringing something else to my mind, especially when you talk about the global perspective, because I was thinking about like at the same time that the crack epidemic is happening in in the 80s, it was also the same time we're seeing these civil wars in Central America. And uh, like, for example, in L.A., we have this huge flood of Salvadorans that come to L.A. in the 80s and early 90s. But But when we're watching TV and we're watching these conversations, you never see those stories linked, right? Why were there wars in Central America? What did that have to do with the drug trade? And how were these drugs ending? up in our communities in fact when i feel like where we're watching conversations especially around um immigration or you know undocumented people coming here it doesn't there's like it's like completely void of that it's like almost like 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 they're completely separate things um and one has no connection to the other even though when people come here especially in places like la they're in communities that are predominantly black and we're already low income
2: yeah and i mean and the other thing too is to think about like what is the role of entertainment you know like entertainment (laughs) is not meant to necessarily, is not meant to, you know, educate. Um, They try to create this new category of edutainment, but entertainment, you're supposed to be entertained. And the other thing too, is that the United States does not want us to have a global perspective. They do not want us to think internationally, uh, internationally or to think that, the fate of workers and oppressed and poor and marginalized people in the United States are intimately linked to the oppression of people abroad, right? And so this is the American exceptionalism. They want us to believe that our experience is distinct from what's happening abroad, and they certainly don't want us to connect the you know U.S. fuckery um, to the reason why we have these floods of people fleeing civil war, fleeing economic destitution, fleeing destabilization, because the U.S. Or the U.S. and its sort of Western partners, NATO partners, generally have a hand in messing up these countries. And they want to discipline or be mad that these people are trying to find a better life in the metropoles. Like this is so 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 entertainment often provides a disinformation um, function.
0: There is a show that uh, I think actually does try to do that um, called Snowfall, which is the first one that I've really seen try to tie in like what's happening abroad in Colombia and like, Latin America and destabilization and, and resistance efforts there and anti-communist efforts with the crack cocaine epidemic. But I think it also brings up what Dr. CBS just brought up, that even at the end of the day, when you try to make edutainment it's it's a step better but it's still not quite there because i thought that's what i always wanted but then when i saw it i was like oh there's something still missing like it still feels lightweight it still feels uh glib and and, and sensationalized like it's it's at the end of the day i don't think anything really uh is a substitute i mean cliche as it sounds like for like a real book or a real uh serious lecture
2: yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so I think that some, you know, there's documentaries, for example, and now there's a, a an explosion of podcasts. But I mean, I think the thing to just essentially to keep in mind is the ways in which the media, so the media is owned by, I think, maybe six uh, large corporations, right, in the United States. And then US media is globalized media because of of, of cultural hegemony. And so to understand like, what is the function of entertainment? And yes, there are some things that slip through the cracks that are, you know, that tell a true history or that, um, are, are a reflection of what's what's going on or, or are a reflection of our reality, but by and large media or art in general, is a sort of a propaganda apparatus. Right. And, and so the, um, the last thing that, <laughs> you know, the ruling class wants to do is provide forms of entertainment that raise consciousness or that that raise unhappiness, right? Or, you know, or, or that raise a sort of Um, dissatisfaction with the status quo. You know, if we look around really the inundation of of streaming and television and now YouTube entertainment, all that stuff is meant to mollify the masses or to to put us to sleep. It's not meant to raise consciousness. Um, Why do you think we have so many cop shows, right? Cops and war that is an overwhelming majority of, of the types of shows that are available because we want to normalize that cops are good. We want to normalize that the U US warmongering is good. And in the interest of freedom and democracy, when neither of either of these things can be further from the truth. I,
1: I, when I think of like edutainment, my mind goes to misedutainment. That's like my first thing. Mm-hmm. Cause even in the, even in the sort of quote-unquote educational things, they're presented like they're educational, but they're, it's really just more propaganda. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've watched a PBS special and just got angry, <laughs> you know, Um, but, but that's considered, you know, entertainment that's educational. And also remembering that media in itself is a capitalist structure. Like, they're not in the—they don't care— as much about you being entertained as much as they care about you watching, so they can make sure their sponsors are happy, right? It's important that they keep you engaged. I mean, part of it, of course, is because these are capitalists, and they want—they don't want you going against the system. In the fact, they, the idea is to make you question people who are going against the system, right? Like, I even, look at a lot of like black movies, for example. Especially, I'll say the '90s, because was the like I could think of where you have these this character that's considered radical, but they're a comedic character right like they're funny because they're not they're just too extreme i feel like that's not
0: i can give an example I, if you want to if, if you don't mind me yeah add, yeah you mind me adding to it uh michael yeah, please do. from good times was a perfect example of that eric monty uh was one of the co-creators and the other creator was uh michael evans who played lionel on the jeffersons um mike evans michael's actually based on him uh the guy who played lionel's last name is evans and evans is loosely based on his family, he left the Jeffersons to go form Good Times. So those couple of years when he was gone from the Jeffersons, that's what he was doing with Eric Monty And Michael was supposed to be the young radical and the white writers kept pushing back and making Michael more and more comical and cartoonish and his radicalism was kind of increasingly painted as childish naivete and all the rest of the characters always be telling them, like shut up Michael or whatever and then they eventually drove the black creators off the show and then by the end of the show it was Michael wasn't even radical even as a joke anymore they just took it out like as he got older he matured out of it.
1: That's actually a great example, and I didn't even know that history. And I'm like obsessed with TV history, so <laughs> I'm glad I didn't even know that. But yeah, that's actually a perfect example. I mean, and I was thinking about like even like um, I wish I could think of the titles of these movies, but you know, like the black movies where it's like the one character has on the kufi and he's just always talking about my
0: brother. And oh yeah, so he's like a joke. <laughs> don't, yeah, you know? there's
2: like what is it, Boys in the Hood? Y- yeah, yeah don't, exactly. Don't be a
0: menace. Had him, and at, at the end, he just really wanted white women and stuff like that
1: right right and and even on tv shows right um i feel like like on a different world there's been a couple of times where there was a character that was considered too radical um and then they make them cartoonish um i I can think of just multiple times same thing um fresh prince of bel-air i've seen it so i i definitely feel like that's again not an accident but that's also part of the framing of of political perspective it's like yeah you have the freedom to think what you want but we're going to condition you to think the way we want you to think
2: yeah, I mean, look at, I mean, and this is part of the critique of like people like um, AOC and Bernie being identifying as socialists when they're really maybe social democrats or Keynesians or, you know progressives, I guess, because what happens is that if that becomes our understanding of what socialism is, then anybody who's to the left of that looks like an extremist, right? It seems like these people are completely fantastical, when indeed, and in fact, there's a long, long history of actually existing socialism, and of, you know, um, you know, even, you know, the communist party and even, you know, we even have like the, uh, the party of socialism and liberation. Now there was the, the progressive party um, in the 1948 campaign, these people who are really demanding broad redistribution of wealth and resources. And this be these political perspectives become discredited. And even like, if you look at something like Antifa, right. Which literally just means anti-fascist, you know, and (laughs) last time I checked, we've, We fought a war against fascism. Right. Um, And so, like, even when you have people who are like, "Mm, white supremacy, you know, is bad. Fascism is bad. They become construed as these left wing, you know, anarchistic and not never even mind the actual anarchists. Right. They become construed as these these subversives, these people who are seditious and trying to undermine um, the state or overthrow the state. Uh, never mind the fact that you have these white supremacist neo-fascists or proto-fascists who are actually trying to do just that if, you know, January 6th is any indication and not just January 6th, you have these absolute loons in <laughs> actually in the House of Representatives who are the actual extremists, but we're so far to the right and we've so delegitimated or, and, you know, discredited radical you know leftist radicalism that these people are almost mainstream right that we'd rather take that form of extremism than we would leftist you know forms of of leftist uh, insurgency especially by black folk so blackness just exacerbates the danger of people with radical ideas
1: and what's interesting is when people want to look more progressive or more radical such as an AOC or a Bernie they they tend to pull out their their Negroes
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know you know and, and it's really you know even like if you look at people like Kamala Harris oh okay so here's an example Cory Booker uh, Cory Booker corporate hooker to use the term of uh, wow Ford. um this is this is Glenn this is the man you know our man Glenn Ford right he he gonna tweet a Fred Hampton quote yesterday and I can't believe you know I was just like if you don't get that you know like so there so to your point wait wait
1: Cory Booker Cory Booker uh sets up tweeted to fred hampton jr
2: no he tweeted a fred hampton quote the quote about like you know you don't fight you know you don't fight it was the one you know we don't fight fire with fire we fight fire with water and then he kind of stopped he basically stopped the stopped at the race part and completely skipped over the socialism part and the proletarian revolution part of that fred hampton quote and so my point is that even when like You know, the black even like, uh, you know, when the black folks like a Cory Booker, Kamala want to look more radical, they'll they'll invoke these radicals, the very people who they if these people were alive today, they would repress, right, they would throw in jail, they would they would subject to NSA surveillance, FBI surveillance. And so everybody, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Paul Mooney has this quote everybody want to be an N, you know, N-word, but nobody want to be an N-word. N-word oh,
1: everybody want to be a nigga, but don't nobody want to be a nigga. There you go.
2: <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't know what the, the rules of your show are. Um, I did say fucked oh, up. No. So, yeah. I, so I it's like everybody wanna want to be a nigga, but nobody want to <laughs> be a nigga. But, and it's the same thing. It's like everybody want to be radical, but nobody want to be a radical. Like nobody wants to do the, the mm, actual facts. organizing. Nobody wants to actually make the demands on the state. Like nobody wants to you know actually hold quote-unquote whole feet to the fire we want to give them time and wait and see and all this shit but <laughs> this is you know so it's it's the same type of thing that Paul Mooney was pointing out with regard to race and appropriation that is such
1: a really good example though because that's exactly what, I, what I've noticed is that you'll start to see these politicians pull out these quotes of of you know Black Panthers and things like that. People that would have been totally against them and they would have been against. I always thought that was pretty sick because it's a way, again, of trying to satisfy people. It's like, like for example, Joe Biden said white supremacy and people melted and their panties got wet. You know what I mean? Like, so what? He's a white supremacist. Him announcing that we should end white supremacy or Trump, you know, and and, and associating that with just Trumpness and Trump is problematic. But some for some reason, that was just enough to people to say, oh, wow, Kamala and Biden um, care about addressing white supremacy.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is all co-optation. Like it's all they co-opt the radical slogans and the radical phrases. And, you know, but they don't co opt the radical methods of organizing. They don't co opt the radical, you know what I'm saying? They don't co-op, do any of the, they don't have any radical solutions. Um, and so, and, you know, Biden ain't gonna do shit about white supremacy because if he did, he would have to abolish the United States. So, right. like, let's just, let's just be, you know, be clear about that. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it, and he used that term to try to distinguish his, himself from Trump so that we would only associate white supremacy with somebody like Donald Trump and with, the, you know, his goons who stormed the Capitol. But indeed, and in fact, we know that white supremacy is foundational to an endemic in the U.S. state and is manifested through things like imperialism, through the ways, for example, he berated those poor Negroes on that civil rights call, you know, a, a few months ago, and, you know, basically told them, you know, um, this is, you know, Jackie Lukman and Sean, uh, Sean Blackman, and a bunch, of, you know, they talked about this quite a few times on by any means necessary. But like, you know, he berated the he berated them, those black, quote, unquote, leaders, I don't, you know, civil rights leaders, I didn't vote, I don't know how they became leaders, I didn't get a say in that. But you know, and basically told them they need to be grateful for all of the things that he's done, that he's done more than any other president for Black people and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's white supremacy. That your Blacks should not be talking back to you It should not be raising legitimate issues that affect the lives of actual Black people. That, you know, Black people should need to shut the fuck up and fall in line. That's white supremacy. So
1: I mean, his entire legacy is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what probably pisses me off more than anything is that everything he's done has been a part of uh, upholding and creating and creating new branches of white supremacy and Kamala that always too. bothers me
2: <laughs> Kamala's not, absolutely there's black white supremacists and she's one of them no, And you know, I, people want to attribute this to her being not african-american or her being a brahmin and all this shit that has to do with her being or her identifying with the american project period so it's not it has nothing to do because african-americans do that shit right just because you know she's not african she's not of you know American descendant of slaves or whatever that's not the reason why she's like that because there are if you Keisha Lance Bottoms Muriel Bowser if we look at these black mayors who are supporting beating the shit out of and you know using police violence against protesters all through the summer it's that these are white supremacist principles yeah and that's that a, are being advocated no, no. by black people mm-hmm.
0: and, and that's a big problem I have these days is I support the idea of no longer flattening blackness and you know treating different black people as being interchangeable with uh, descendants of American slavery. Like I totally get that, but it's become this new overcorrection where now people act like there has never been a black American sellout uh, ever. So like it, happen- it happens in my mentions sometimes, where whenever I bring up something or somebody, there'll always be two or three people like, "Was that person black uh, African American?" and then. You know, i like, uh, actually, this person was. Oh, well, then, um, what about this or what? I, and it's like, okay, this game of pretending that uh, there has never been or never w- will be uh, a Black American sellout has become my new, like, annoying pet peeve in the in the discourse because it keeps people from talking about the bigger issues. Like, what are we gonna do about this thing instead of quibbling over which column does this fall under? <laughs>
1: I agree. I'm with you on that too. That shit irritates me too. Because again, it it takes away from the actual conversation. And and I like what Dr. CVS just brought up because I look at, like keisha lance bottoms right i didn't know really anything about her other than that she was a black mayor and she was a woman right me and my perspective my thing is always I always question you know people who get into certain positions how did they get there who and why do those people like them that got them there what made me realize the kind of black person she was in that position was when um she talked crazy to the black protesters Mm -hmm. i mean she was just going talking basically talking like talking to them like they were children she talked to her constituents like they were children when it was time to chastise these officers that attacked her constituents and attacked black people she was like super uh soft oh this doesn't represent the department you know these individuals shouldn't have done this thing and we're gonna you know i was just i was shocked and they were like a day and it literally. Right. So I, when I saw that, that's when I r- really felt like I could see the ties of white supremacy in the position and in the and in and, and her. And that was one of the first times I really like the light came on because it was like you said, it was like a day apart. So it was like night and day. It's like I saw the clips almost back to back.
2: Well, I mean, Killer Mike is no exception. Right. And so all of us, you know, Killer Mike has become, you know, the black or, you know, the black activist hero. Somehow, when and I'm not saying I don't necessarily I don't think that Keisha Lance Bottoms and Killer Mike are the same have the same political are the of the same sort of political cloth, but I do think you know he was telling people to go home too, and I'm like, why? They're on under that shit. Like let people do what they do. Um, well,
1: he, he tends to contradict himself a bunch of times too so
2: I, I wish he would tend to shut the fuck up is what i would like <laughs> is all i'm saying so you know <laughs> i ain't mad at it
0: uh, i want to ask uh, about the paper but i feel like the paper is going to be pretty much take up the rest of the time so i want to know if you want to bring up anything else for you that before we get into the, the paper relating to what we already spoke to
1: Um, No, we can go right into the paper, actually. Okay.
0: Uh, I was reading the paper, and there's a lot of nuanced um, positions in it being advocated by different people. And you seem to be trying to show kind of like this um, thesis and antithesis and uh, synthesis happening um, in this conversation. And I want to make sure that I understood kind of what the central... Question: of The paper is, and if I'm wrong, or if it's too glib, or if it's off base, um, by all means, please correct me. But it seems like it's discussing um, two common uh, refrains or positions that kind of come up in the class versus race debate where um, one side is saying that uh, you can't have racism without uh, capitalism as if um, racism was born out of capitalism and another side that says you can't have capitalism without racism and it's kind of about the conversation between these two um, positions and the attempt to find some kind of nuanced synthesis would that be a right way of characterizing it or am I off base and where would I be off base
2: well I wouldn't say that that's the starting point the starting point I take as a given that I'm not engaging in in the class versus race debate because I'm I'm just straight up arguing these things are mutually constitutive I think that the stakes are more so um, about thinking about capitalism the 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 so Cedric Robinson thinks about racialism as starting in the feudal order and as starting in the feudal order and permeating through to capitalism, I'm specifically thinking about how the capitalist mode of production shapes and is shaped by Racism and racialization, particularly anti-black racism, and the second part that the second thing that I'm arguing is that you can't understand anti-blackness or anti-black racism without understanding anti-radicalism, because of the ways in which both anti-radical or excuse me, both radicalism, specifically socialism on the one hand, and black liberation on the other, upend the system of racial capitalism. And so, part of what I'm doing is arguing that the ways in which my work or my intervention on racial capitalism is rooted in Black, communist, socialist, and anti-capitalist thinkers in ways sets me apart from Cedric Robinson, who sees Marxism as sort of inadequate to understand the modern order, so to speak. And I'm arguing that, well, it's a whole bunch of Black Marxist Leninists who were using scientific socialism or historical materialism as a way to understand the centrality of the Negro question. And so if it is that we follow their lead, we get to this idea of racial capitalism, even though these people like W.B. Du Bois, James Ford, James Boggs, Esther Cooper Jackson, et cetera, et cetera, didn't use the term racial capitalism. And so I'm already taking for granted that race and class are mutually constitutive. That That's not the debate. And I don't take that debate seriously because I think it's jejune at this point. So it's more so a sort of what I would call an epistemological question. That is to say, um, how do we how do we understand the relationship between race and capitalism as opposed to are race and capitalism related?
0: Got it. Was surprised to find out that Cedric Robinson was so critical of um, Marxism because I had not read, I've heard of Cedric Robinson, but I always thought he was, um, you know, more, more, of a cheerleader for Marxism. It was a very um, surprising. So like, what was it that made him feel that Marxism was inadequate to um, discuss these problems? Where did he think it was um, lacking?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, invite your listeners to read the first, um, well, black, you know, Black Marxism, the the making of the Black radical tradition in general, but essentially he's arguing that number one, Marxism is Eurocentric in that it overstates the case of the the white proletariat or the the European um, working class as revolutionary subjects. He's saying that essentially Marx took a particularistic understanding of class struggle and extrapolated it to the whole the whole world in ways that. Did not account for black resistance and black struggle specifically, um, you know, um, born out of the system of enslavement. And the other thing that he's arguing is that Marx doesn't sufficiently, or even at all, in his perspective, grapple with with race and racism, which was very much part of not only capitalism but was a holdover um, or a continuation from the feudal order. And so he's just arguing that all around as a method. As a sort of uh, a methodology for understanding or interrogating history or universal history, Marxism is inadequate, and so he's looking at um, the ways that Black folks. So he he draws on uh, Richard Wright, W. B. Du Bois, and C. L. R. James. The ways in which, while even though they had these dalliances with Marxism, or even though they, Marxism was one aspect of how they understood modernity or understood, you know, capitalism or or the Black condition within capitalism. It was actually this Black radical tradition, that is to say this form of entrenched and enduring resistance to the culture, politics, and um, intellectual project of uh, Euro-American modernity that actually structures the radicalism of Black people, and so Marxism is, you know, so so Black radicalism. Even though the Black radicals that he points out, you know, engage with Marxism, their radicalism is of a diff is of a different type. It's of a and it's more explanatory and more relevant to understanding structures of domination, not least racialism. So that's that's what I take to be his thesis.
0: Yeah, and I and I was from your article, it seems to sure that there are some people like Ralph and Singhal who uh, were speaking back to Marx and called him, uh, as you put in this article, a misguided reading of, his point of departure is a misguided reading of Marx coupled with a masculinist theoretical tradition that draws upon a centralist rendition of African culture.
2: So that's their critique of Robinson. Yeah, yeah. That's, so that's that. M- Ralph and Singhal are levying a critique of Robinson, yes. who they feel misunderstood and misread Marxism, which I tend to agree with.
0: Yes, yes, and that's the part that you said uh, that they rightfully that they rightfully noted that he overlooks uh, a lot of ways that black radicals have successfully incorporated Marx into powerful forms of uh, resistance. But you also seem to defend part of the racial capitalism theory that's saying like their wholesale dismissal kind of overstates the flaws in it. And I was curious if you could talk about the ways that they misrecognize the frameworks uh, power and and potential, like like the parts where Robinson is, is on point and shouldn't be dismissed.
2: Well, what they're arguing is that basically what you know, Stinghall and Ralph are arguing for is they center Michael Ralph's um, position um, called forensics of capital, which looks at all of these different ascriptive categories and the ways in which they inform one's credit worthiness in a global order, basically. And so that's what they say is a more useful framework than racial capitalism, because essentially, race is only one vector or one aspect of the, the the capitalist the modern capitalist world order, so to speak right? There's ability, gender, and these other ascriptive categories that matter. And so my, my retort to that is like Claudia Jones was somebody who talked about triple oppression. And, you know, so she talked about the ways in which black women, for example, are oppressed as women, as workers, and as black folks. But she still said the Negro question, that is to say, the race question is prior to the woman question. And so even though we're naming racial capitalism, it doesn't mean that these other aspects are not important. We're looking at the contemporaneous ways in which, rate, rate, like racialization as a structural process informed and was informed by capitalist exploitation. And then there's all of these other factors that also fit into that broad rubric. And so they're dismissing racial capitalism for emphasizing the racial. And I just think that that's kind of a red herring.
0: You bring up Oliver Cromwell Cox's explication in Capital American Leadership, which I thought, uh, I really have to read Oliver Cromwell Cox. But uh, can you describe? Because it seems like you take a lot from uh, Cox's uh, formulation.
2: Yeah, so I, you know, basically, uh, Oliver Cox uh, is really the earliest world systems theorist, and he's looking at the the relationship relationships of exploitation, both within and among nations. And so he really is thinking about the role of foreign exchange, which ultimately, for him, um, is is bound up in imperialism as constitutive of, this, of the capitalist system, not necessarily the highest stage of capitalism, and the ways in which these relations of domination that emanate from the necessity of, of foreign exchange result, one result of that is like racial antagonism or racialism. in that And as such, the way in which racial antagonism can be overcome is not, is only through the collapsing of the capitalist system. And so for me, I think that Cox, and Cox also has, I don't talk about it much in this article, he also has a particular critique of Marx um, and the labor theory of value and he also is critical of this idea of class struggle um, and, you know, class struggle in the sort of orthodox Marxian sense as the means of um, the transition from capitalism to socialism. And so for me, I think that Cox grapples with questions of imperialism racial antagonism and the the nature of in the, the world systemic nature of capitalism in ways that are informative to my own understanding and so he just happens he happens to be sort of whereas others will focus on Adam Smith for understanding capitalism or or you know Keynes or um um or Karl Marx I Cox is like that, the foundational sort of theorist of capitalism for me because he brings together a lot of the dynamics that I'm interested in and that I think are important to understanding um, our current structural material conditions.
0: um is the last... Less- it's is the last question I had. It's both a question and a statement slash observation. The first is the observation. I really like the sentence: "Anti-blackness and anti-radicalism function as the legitimating architecture of modern U-race, U.S. racial capitalism." I think that is a wonderful turn of phrase that really uh, drives things home. I, I just like that. I just like that prose. I just wanted to compliment you on it. It's not really a question. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> the question that I had. This was something I did not understand, and I don't. I don't think it's your fault I just think it's a lot going on and it just exploded my brain what does it mean anti-blackness thus conceals the inherent contradiction of of blackness. Value
1: Oh, you took my oh, really? <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, well, go ahead. No, no, value no, no. Go ahead. minus worth obscuring and distorting a structural location, contorting it into only a debilitated um condition. Like I felt like I would need a day just to unpack that that sentence.
2: Okay. It basically means that we're we're told or we're made to to feel like blackness ain't shit, right? Black people are lazy, abject, we ain't got no daddies. We don't know how to act. We loud. Uh, we're poor, we're ghetto, right? That's how we that is how blackness is constructed in the context of the United States. And so me, it me, it makes it seem as if blackness is simply worthless. But indeed, in, in fact, blackness is this capacious category from which that starts a lot of economic functions, right? So I, you know, one is labor exploit labor super exploitation. Um, you know, one is is expropriation one is the absorption of the risks of capital so so for example if you look at redlining right redlining serves a very very racialized function on the one hand it's a way it's a form of devaluation so if white fo- if white folks live somewhere and black folks move in the property value goes down right at the same time, Black people, um, when they live in these red areas, they tend, more value is extracted from them because they pay more for rent, right, because they have to travel further for things like grocery stores, um, and they have, you know, they have less access overall, so it's more expensive. There's more value to be, that is extracted from Black people, and it's insurance companies and, real, and you know, realtors and even, you know, the U.S. government that are invested in this project of basically charging blacks more, that is to say from extracting more surplus value from black people on the one hand, and maintaining this by making it sort of a mode of devaluation to live around them if you're white. That's the economic function that blackness serves. So it's very, very valuable but we can't but we have to the ways in which you you are able to sort of exploit black people in this way or expropriate black people in this way is by painting them as worthless or painting them as criminal and all of these negative pejorative things about them because then it's okay right that you you do all this fucked up shit to black folks right then it becomes like okay well they deserve it it's because of all of this other all of these other realities about them and so this is the contradiction or what I call an aporia aporia is a irresolvable contradiction this is the aporia of value minus worth and this is the tension if it is that that to me if it is at that that contradiction is resolved this will collapse this is the sort of this will collapse this the system as such right and this is why you know the approach to black people is genocide but it's not extermination because that having that group is exceedingly valuable even as we devalue over and over this group of black people so that's what that means
1: open my mind up or my eyes up into this uh, with that particular point cuz never thought about the way that we're valuable to these institutions outside of just our labor or going to prison, right? I didn't even consider, you know, the fact that we pay more for our groceries, the fact that we pay, we have to pay twice as much in gas to get to the store or we have to, you know, um, or, you know, we get these loans that are crappy and we end up paying more in interest on credit and things like that. I like it. That never even like you blew my mind just with that. Like I've never connected those dots. And it's really fascinating to me because. We don't even see, okay, I always think about us not seeing our value as far as our value to ourselves, because, you know, we've been sort of conditioned to see ourselves negatively. We behave negatively, like like what you just said, basically, like we're conditioned to say, well, we almost deserve this. Right. So, like, for example, I work in um, trauma informed care and I've been working with children and children who have been abused um, for about almost 15, 20 years now. One of the things you'll hear children say is they think it's their fault oh, I shouldn't have behaved that way. My mother wouldn't have done that. Oh, I was being bad. Oh, I am bad. It's like, it's an internalized feeling. So I always thought of Black people not seeing their value in, in almost in that way. I didn't even think about giving them more money by virtue of just being poor and Black. Like I didn't even... Yes,
2: yeah, the Black tax, it's expensive to be Black. Think about, you know, think about, for example, you have a bank account, right? You overdraw your account. You're charged 25 or $35 by the bank. So the bank that's the bank charging you for being poor okay and why and it theoretically it applies to everybody because it's, it's a flat rate but there are groups who will never even over- there will never even be in the risk of overdrawing their account right and so that's a black tax if you think about ferguson right part of the part of the sort of racial logics of, of ferguson missouri was that they were passing out the police force was passing out all of these fines they were fining literally everything, right? Or having and having all of these court fees. And when people cannot pay those court fees, they would issue warrants for their arrest. And so there was all of these contacts that people were having with the police. And this is a for this is a this is expropriation. They're extracting money from this population that has very little already through law, right? Through civil policy. And this is this is what I call legitimating architecture. But it's it, but but it's not, you know, they're doing it in a way that uh, it seems like this is just how society works but the but the laws are set up or these policies are set up to tax black people especially black poor people for being black and poor period right and so um and then you know, the fact that you are, you know, you have this fine and you can't pay leads to particular type, you know, leads to you being criminalized, right? You go to jail. And so then it's like, well, you know, then there's this, you know, there's this idea of black criminality when indeed, and in fact, the system is set up to criminalize black people basically to be poor because they're poor and they criminalize the behavior that in which black poor people engage so that they can extract money from them or lock them up, which also is another sort of economic function called disaccumulation,
1: but um, I I won't go into that. So, yeah. No, that's actually, I mean, you're really breaking that down in a way that I haven't really thought about. I mean, I feel like I've heard that term, the black tax, but again, I just didn't apply it um, in the day-to-day like you did. Like, you know, just being someone who grew up in the neighborhoods that I've grown up in, like I grew up in South Central my entire life, right? The thing about South Central LA is you'll see a range. I want to say classes, but kind of, but not really, right? Like three of the top wealthiest black neighborhoods in America are in uh, Ladera Heights, um, View Park in Windsor Hills, um, which is the Baldwin Hills area, on average, those people make about $300,000 a year, which doesn't even compare to the <laughs> the wealthiest white communities in America, right? So in a place like LA, like you can literally, you know, you see straight poverty, the housing projects, you know, 15 minute, a 15 minute drive, you're in, you know, with many mansions and big homes and, and things like that. And you sort of see this sort of class differentiation, but then you also begin to see these conversations around how do we, well, how do we build more wealth as a group right how i always question how one how is that possible when you have these sort of distinctions in these groups that divide themselves also um you have these people who are tr- trying to take advantage of the idea of ac- economic independence or you know and things like that for black people by pushing other agendas so for example i, I know t sent us something around uh this black girl magic wine you know which always <laughs> be interesting stuff like that or um the blm credit card and i, I know uh T you have something you want to talk about in regards to that as well. But sort of what I think you called it like woke oh, capitalism? Woke What'd capitalism, you call
0: it? this kind of uh thing where you're kind of um uh woke washing capitalism where you take a strain of what superficially looks like uh, black radicalism you know in the form of maybe representation or popular protesting and then filter it in you know co it through capitalism and i couldn't quite put the connection to how racial capitalism that was being described in dr cbs's article leads us to a place where the radicalism and the capitalism combined to form this kind of circus that is woke capitalism but there was a there was for some reason i just had this like automatic association as i was reading the article i was thinking about things like that like like the black girl wine set that comes in a box and the and the um blm credit card and this and the pitch behind the blm credit card is like insane when you read it about like how you basically get this type of radical self-actualization by taking control of um your finances through the blm credit card and it's supported by a black-owned banks so that makes it okay yeah donations go to blm oh Don't yeah that, that part, part. too.
2: Well, again, that's just about ideology. Let me let me tell you something as a as a group, black people cannot black people cannot become uh, black capitalism is an impossibility. There are a few people who can make who a few entrepreneurs who will make money um, and maybe become affluent. But if you just have to just look at the black, the the black business ownership statistics, they are abysmal black people. If you don't if we don't own any colonies, if we don't have empires and if we don't have slave labor, we're not going to be a capitalist class, period because that is the function of capitalism and that to bring it back full circle that is what racial capitalism conveys is that it's not just these these objective relations of exchange you know of exchange and um you know consume you know production and consumption it's not that it is imperialism it is colonialism it is slavery it is ra- you know racial based dispossession and expropriation it's super exploitation these are the drivers of capitalism of racial capitalism right and if it is that you don't have access to those processes if you don't ra- you know have the monopoly on state violence it is not going to happen it will happen for a few individuals and this is why those few individuals are invested in this narrative of buy black or of of black capitalism or a contract with black america or whatever or even a black bank but this is simply it's a it's fantastical right and of course jared balls the myth and propaganda of black buying power goes into this um and in that you know there are even robert allen's black awakening in capitalist america there are many many critiques of this idea of black capitalism is bullshit it was something that is is sort of it's a it's a, a fantastical idea that's sold to Black people um, to reproduce the system and to give this false idea that capitalism is for us when it was not too long ago that we as Black people were capital ourselves.
1: You know, we're gonna end here, but you know, just to that point as well, I was thinking about you know what I was talking about earlier about this this range of classes within Blackness. Which groups within that even benefit from half of these things that come out, right? It, like that, who is it, who is a BLM? credit card really going to benefit
2: yeah and yeah so who could you know who has credit to get these credit cards right who who has (laughs) the startup capital to start the to start and sustain these businesses um and you know who um you know who so i think that all of these questions are are really really important and why is it anytime a corporation is investing in a particular you know you know anytime a bank is you know getting behind a black lives matter credit card i think we're in trouble because banks are in the money making business (laughs) and you know and so that is uh I, i think we need to think Twice about that, and and they foreclose on and, you, to put
0: a black power and, fist up, so that's good.
2: Yeah, you know exactly, and so you know <laughs> we. This is not black capitalism, ain't it? So I think that that's the moral of the story. Um, black capitalism is failed, is essentially failed capitalism. <laughs>
1: so, and that's a uh, that's where we're gonna end. I know that sounds kind of uh, you know morbid what's a nice uh hopeful note that we can end on
2: organize like organize join organizations and let's you know let's put this world put put into place a better world that is built on black liberation and socialism another world is possible
1: thank you love it it's like i I put on twitter these Dead prez lyrics um would you rather have uh what is it man i've lost it now would you rather have a dream or some substance a beam or a necklace of freedom right what did that you really want Do we want these material things or do we want liberation because i'll be honest with you most of us aren't going to get this material anyway and even if we do we're still going to be suffering so it's all about that liberation thank, thank you, you so much dr cbs sharice burden stelly you are amazing i love the way that you broke things down for us i know i'm not the most scholarly person on earth and you definitely helped me to understand and i always will appreciate you for that
2: well thank you for those kind words and thank you both for having me on again
0: yeah yeah definitely appreciate your patience as we try to follow along take care (laughs) take care enjoy uh your super bowl sunday and we'll talk to you soon
1: thank you bye-bye all right thank you everyone for listening have a great one